In Tolkien's rich tapestry of storytelling, the First Age unfolds with tales of valor and tragedy. While the very essence of light is both a scientific and imaginative marvel. Join us in uncovering the divine creation of Middle-earth and how the seemingly unknown and weak, like hobbits, have their own parts to play in turning the wheels of destiny. Today we dive deeper into Tolkien's letter to Milton Waldman. If you're new here, tap that subscribe or follow button, that way you won't miss out on any new episodes. And if you're not new here, share the show with someone. Frodo wouldn't have gotten far without Sam. And likewise, wandering Middle-earth is better together. Tap that share button and send away. I have no Shire letters to share with you today. If you'd like to send me a Shire letter, you can email me using the link in the show notes, or find the show on Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. Or you can always provide a review. I try to read on the show every new review that I notice. So go ahead and drop me a Shire letter. I always respond to each note from a fellow Middle-earth wanderer. Now, let's wander. Let's check the map. It's been a while. For our new listeners, this map check is inspired by the beautiful maps that accompany the Lord of the Rings. I always loved looking at the map when I read about a new place. These map checks are the Lore of the Rings podcast version of previously on our show. We've been exploring the Waldman Letter, a letter that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote to a publisher in 1951, and is now printed as a preface in Tolkien's The Silmarillion. In Tolkien's words, this letter is, quote, a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. But after two episodes of wandering through this essay, it's clear that there's nothing brief about it. So far, we've broken down Tolkien's motivations for writing his imaginary world, and we've covered some of the themes that he points out as critical, especially the ideas of the fall, mortality, and the machine, or magic. For a refresher on those ideas, please check out the previous two episodes. Today, finally, after four pages and two episodes, we arrive at Tolkien's own summary of his works. And it begins before the beginning of Middle-earth, quote, The cycles begin with a cosmogonical myth, the music of the Ainur. God and the Valar, or powers, Englished as gods, are revealed. These Valar are given power to rule and govern within, quote, their spheres, but the power to create wholesale from nothing is not given to them. The creator god then has the Valar sing the world into existence. The world is fashioned first in their minds, or imaginations, but they must go make it a reality according to the powers given them by the creator god. For a deeper dive on this tale, go all the way back to episode 1, the beginning of Middle-earth. Why start here, with a divine drama that plays out before the world begins? It ties back to Tolkien's motivations. He wanted to create a mythical narrative that would match the pantheon of ancient world myths, like the Egyptians and Greeks. Quote, On the side of narrative device, this is meant to provide beings of the same order of beauty, power, and majesty as the gods of higher mythology. Yet these gods are not fully omniscient. They each had knowledge within their own domains, but only the full knowledge of everything was held by the Creator God. The reason for this limitation is that Tolkien understood his audience. He was creating a myth for a predominantly Christian-imbibed nation, and wanted to make his gods acceptable, quote, shall we say badly, by a mind that believes in the Blessed Trinity. Therefore, quote, 
The knowledge of the creation drama was incomplete. Incomplete in each individual god, and incomplete if all the knowledge of the pantheon were pooled. Specifically, the creator god, quote, has not revealed all. The making and nature of the children of God were the two chief secrets. These children of God, which the creator god reserves for himself, come in two varieties, the firstborn, or elves, and the followers, or men. These children of God are related to the Valar, being created by God, and yet are separate. This separation genders a particular love for the children in the Valar. These two children, elves and men, are fundamentally different. Quote, the doom of the elves is to be immortal, while the doom or the gift of men is mortality. The immortality of the elves leads them to, quote, love the beauty of the world and to bring it to its pinnacle of beauty and perfection. They never leave the created world. Even in death, their spirits remain on this planet, and they can return to life. But, quote, when the followers come, to teach them and make way for them to fade as the followers grow. Thus elves are indeed meant to be the teachers of men. This purpose is best exemplified in the relationship between Elrond and Aragorn. Though not portrayed in the movies, Elrond had virtually adopted Aragorn as a son and raised him as the future king of the divisions of men. In fact, there's a great conversation between Elrond and Aragorn before Aragorn goes out into the world in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings and we explored that in episode 67. The mortality of men is labeled a gift, and here's why. Whereas the lives of the elves are inherently connected with the world and the music of creation, men's gift of death allows them, quote, freedom from the circles of the world, meaning men had more agency, more power of choice, though also more corruptibility than the elves. And now Tolkien taps into the ideas that he explored before, and we looked at last episode, particularly the fall and how that leads to power and the machine. Quote, there cannot be any story without a fall. All stories are ultimately about the fall. The fall of man is not explained in Tolkien's myth. That comes from the Christian myth in Tolkien's view. And besides that, he's writing this myth from a uniquely elvish perspective. So it lends more attention to the fall of the elves. Quote, the main body of the tale, the Silmarillion proper, is about the fall of the most gifted kindred of the elves, their exile from Valinor, their re-entry into Middle-earth, and their strife with the enemy, the power of evil, still visibly carnate. That description is one of the most brief that I have ever heard to accurately describe the Silmarillion. Finally, something brief from Tolkien. The principal act of sub-creation by the elves is the creation of gems, quote, but the Silmarils were more than just beautiful things. The Silmarils contained light, indeed the blended light, from the two trees of Valinor. Here Tolkien inserts an interesting footnote about light. Remember, he is deliberately attempting to craft a myth of epic implications, and so, for light to not have an importance in his story would be a major miss. Quote, light is such a primeval symbol in the universe that it can hardly be analyzed. He goes on to provide the distinctive qualities of this primeval pre-fall light. It is, quote, art undivorced from reason, that sees things both scientifically or philosophically and imaginatively or sub-creatively, and says that they are good as beautiful. Let's dive into what this statement about light may have meant for Tolkien and its implications for his invented myth. 
Tolkien believed that great art should be inherently connected to reason and imagination. He argued that true creativity encompasses both scientific or philosophical understanding and imaginative sub-creative aspects. He didn't see a stark divide between logic and creativity, but rather a symbiotic relationship where they work in harmony to create something beautiful and meaningful. We've seen this idea at work already in just this summary. In Tolkien's Legendarium, the creation of the world reflects this concept. The creator god mentioned earlier collaborates with his divine Ainur to create the world through music, a blend of reason, the harmony of the Ayolindale, and imagination, the creation of the world based on that music. This act is an artistic endeavor that embodies the idea of art undivorced from reason. Tolkien's concept of sub-creation is a central theme in his works. He believed that authors, like himself, engage in a form of creation within the greater creation of the world. His mythology represents the sub-creative act of inventing languages, cultures, histories, and legends, which is a manifestation of both reason, philological expertise, and imagination, world-building. This is evident in the depth and richness of Middle-earth. Tolkien's statement emphasizes the idea that, quote, they are good as beautiful. In his mythology, the pursuit of beauty and goodness is a reoccurring theme. The elves, in particular, embody this quest for aesthetic and moral excellence, creating beautiful art, music, and craftsmanship. This pursuit of beauty reflects Tolkien's own longing for a world where reason and imagination coexist harmoniously and where beauty is synonymous with goodness. Returning to the story, the enemy slays the two trees, but from them is salvaged enough light to create the sun and moon. Tolkien mentions that the light of the sun and moon, though glorious, are but mere fractions of the unsullied original light, and he points out that this is a difference to other major myths. The sun, quote, is not a divine symbol, but a second best thing, and thus the world that was lit by the sun was a fallen world, quote, a dislocated, imperfect vision. You can dive deeper into the light of the trees and the sun and moon in episodes 2, 5, and 9. We'll continue with Tolkien's summary and an additional key theme that he highlights right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. You can be the hero of your own Marvel Comics adventure. Marvel Strike Force is an extraordinary mobile game, a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable Apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary. That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now, back to Wandering. 
The next portion of Tolkien's letter is a summary of the first age of Middle-earth and the Silmarillion. He points out, Feanor, the creator of the Silmarils, and his, quote, possessive attitude, which, if you remember from our previous episode, was one of the chief attributes of the Fall. Feanor and his sons are able to, quote, prevert the greater part of their kindred, who rebel against the gods and depart from paradise and go to make hopeless war upon the enemy. Tolkien here is referencing the Noldor, that house of elves that left Valinor and returned to Middle-earth, of which Galadriel was one, as well as Elrond's forefathers. For a closer look at the elves returning to Middle-earth, go back and listen to episodes 6 and 7. To use Tolkien's own words, quote, The Silmarillion is the history of the war of the exiled elves against the enemy, which all takes place in the northwest of the world, Middle-earth. Several tales of victory and tragedy are caught up in it, but it ends with catastrophe, and the passing of the ancient world, the world of the long First Age. The stories of the First Age have a gradual decline. Quote, As the stories become less mythical and more like stories and romances, men are interwoven. Remember, elves will fade as men grow, and the world of myth will gradually give way to the world as we know it. Tolkien then is careful to enumerate that, quote, There are two marriages of mortal and elf, both later coalescing in the kindred of Eärendil, represented by Elrond the half-elven, who appears in all the stories. Okay, quite a bit to break down here. First, Tolkien was very hesitant for elves and mortals to marry. Cross-species bondings like that were extremely unique and rare. That uniqueness adds to the distinctiveness of Elrond. He is the connecting link between all the stories, having been born in the First Age as the culmination of both elf-mortal marriages and departing Middle-earth at the end of the Third Age. His lineage has the distinction of having not only elf and mortal ancestors, but also a semi-divine ancestor in the form of Melian the Maya. Perhaps it's for this reason that Elrond appears in all the tales that Tolkien viewed the Hobbit as the connecting link between all his myths. Elrond is the bridge, being half-elven, able to cross the divide between elves and mortals, as the elves fade and the men strengthen. Tolkien then calls out what he considered to be the great tales of the First Age, and what themes those tales represent for him. The first is the tale of Baron the Mortal Man and Luthien the Elf Maiden. We've covered this tale extensively on this show, and you can find a deep dive in episodes 20 through 24. The other tales that Tolkien points out include the Children of Húrin, the Fall of Gondolin, and the tale of Elrond's father, Eärendil, by whose persuasions the gods were convinced to intervene reclaim the Silmarils, thrust the enemy to the outer void, and bring the first age of Middle-earth to a close. To go deeper on each of these tales, check out episodes 26 through 31. I'll also call out that Tolkien himself describes the three resting places of the Silmarils, quote, The last two sons of Feanor, compelled by their oath, steal them and are destroyed by them, casting themselves into the sea and the pits of the earth, the ship of Eärendil adorned with the last Silmaril is set in heaven as the brightest star. I will keep mentioning this as an additional evidence of Amazon's rings of power straying too far from the lore, in trying to connect the origins of Mithril with a lightning-infused Silmaril. Before we close, I want to explore a major theme that Tolkien himself points out in the tale of Baron and Luthien. You might find this theme familiar, quote, Here we meet the first example of the motive to become dominant in hobbits 
that the great policies of world history, the wheels of the world, are often turned not by the lords and governors, even gods, but by the seemingly unknown and weak, owing to the secret life in creation, and the part unknowable to all wisdom but one. Baron fills this theme as an outlaw, destitute mortal, and Luthien as a mere maiden, who dared to enter the fortress of darkness and reclaim one of the three Silmarils. Elrond actually says this theme out loud in the Fellowship of the Ring in the chapter of the Council of Elrond, quote, This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong, yet such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Small hands move the wheels of the world, as Tolkien mentioned, due to the secrets of creation that the Creator God put into the natures of elves and men. The secret life of creation that baffles the Valar and the elves at times, and even brings Gandalf to awe as he remarks, Hobbits truly are amazing creatures. This is why hobbits play such a critical role in the Lord of the Rings. Two hobbits, plus a long degenerate hobbit, carry the one ring through all the armies and lands of the enemy to destroy it in Mount Doom. One hobbit nearly sacrificed his life in stabbing the Nazgul's leg so that Eowyn could finish him. And then there's Pippin. Not really sure what he did, except get Gandalf killed. Just kidding. Because of Pippin, Gandalf was resurrected as the White Wizard, and Faramir was saved and the city of Gondor was filled with hope. Pippin, in fact, was the only representative of hobbits in the final battle outside the Black Gate, as Merry was left behind to heal. In the book, that is. I believe that this theme is also one reason why The Lord of the Rings resonates with so many people on such a deep level. It's the small deeds of ordinary folk that keep the evil at bay. To paraphrase Gandalf's line from the Hobbit movie, You and I are ordinary folk. Each day of our lives we make small choices, perform little deeds that bring greater light into the world, and keep the darkness of evil at bay. Not everyone can be Superman or Iron Man or the Hulk or Wonder Woman or Harry Potter or Obi-Wan Kenobi or James T. Kirk or Captain Picard. Those people are superheroes because they are super or superior than the average person. But each of us can be like a hobbit, loyal and true like Bilbo, courageous like Frodo, brave like Merry, hopeful like Pippin, or full of friendship and love like Samwise Gamgee. As Tolkien's stories teach us, it's not about being superhuman, but about being authentically human and making choices that bring light to the world. It's the ordinary heroes like the hobbits who remind us that even the smallest of deeds can change the course of the world. My friends, we are about halfway through the Waldman letter. Please join me next time, where we'll explore Tolkien's own summary of the second age of Middle-earth. Thank you for wandering Middle-earth with me today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost.